Some people grow up idolizing different people throughout their lives. I always wanted to be like my father. Look at the wall. It's a mother like being a free man. <laughs> it's liberating, mate. Liberating. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on here? So you're out then. It's no thanks to you either. Let's just say we can kill two boards with one stone. That was, of course, a clip from the trailer for Broken Law by Paddy Slattery. And Paddy is our most esteemed guest uh, today. Um, delighted to be able to put this together. Um, Paddy is a fascinating person. We talked about everything from his philosophy on life, a lot of movie talk, and we got into the nitty gritty about making his debut feature, Broken Law, um, a really tense crime thriller done on a real shoestring budget. Uh, So it was really great to kind of get into the weeds a little bit with Paddy on how he made it and what he learned from it. And um, yeah, he's just a joy to chat to. Um, We had him up to my house and we had a very special guest uh, jump on to help me co-host this one in uh, actor and friend of the show Steve Gunn um, so I'd like to apologize just to Paddy for the sound uh, doing a home recording isn't uh, ideal but I we did my best so um, we hope you don't mind too much and you get as much out of this conversation as we did um, so shout out to our sponsors Wildcard Distribution and Film Equipment Store um, check out wearefni.com um, for updates uh, on classes uh, that we are rolling out in uh, this month. Um, and as always, if you want to help support FNI, the podcast, and everything that goes with it, uh, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash FNI. And uh, let's just go to Paddy Slattery. Paddy Slattery and a guest interviewer, Steve Gunn. How is everyone doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, great. Um, how have the last couple of months been for you, Paddy? Pretty crazy, I, I guess. Best couple of months of my life. <laughs> Not really. Um, it's been a bit Twilight Zoney. Um, lots of good moments. Um, I very. Interestingly enough, I got time to myself to focus on my health, get relatively healthy. Uh, I actually bought a Fitbit, and now I'm competing with myself, doing uh, trying to do 10k steps a day. Um, but work-wise, the funny thing is, we were—I mean, with with our feature film *Broken Law*, we had it sort of premiered just before the lockdown. So we kind of had this respite period where we could sort of let all the madness of that sink in. And I guess we, we got to spend some time wrangling 
contracts and legal and accounts for um, for cinema release and all that kind of stuff. So timing was very good for me. I was one of the very lucky few, I think. It's the first movie I saw after the lockdown. Really? I had a bit of movies in 19 or 20 weeks. And TJ O'Grady Payton, a friend of the show, himself and himself went in, sat in the lighthouse, you know, terrified of getting the virus. So yeah, great movie, man. Well done. Thanks for going for you. Thanks for ending the, the lockdown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the same, yeah. Did you enjoy it? I did, of course. Yeah, no, brilliant. Yeah, great I'm stuff. expert at reading like micro expressions now. Well, so. I'm an excellent actor, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was cool, man. It's great. Really? Thanks, I Yeah, I was the same. Yeah, me and my girlfriend went to see it in the lighthouse. Um, I'd say they were just delighted to have a film, like a new film, and something yeah. that people wanted to go. So, yeah. uh, such a difficult time to release a film. I don't know what you can tell us about numbers. Or how, was it a surprise? Or well, we're kind of out the other end of our release now. We yeah. released on the thirty first of July, and it's still out there uh, performing. I think it actually exceeded our expectations um, because certain, I mean, what was it, 50 capacity for, for certain venues, but even in the smaller screens, it's even less than 50 allowed in, so we were thinking, and like a lot of people were saying to me, it must have been a, a sort of a bittersweet sort of um, experience releasing it, but I'm actually kind of proud that we, our distributors, Breakout Pictures, mm-hmm. Rob and Elle, had the confidence and the courage to, to take it on, despite the fact that people weren't necessarily inclined to go to cinema. Um, and I, I like 10, 20 years time we'll look back on this as an important moment in our history mm-hmm. and we can say that we had a film in cinema during one of the most um, difficult times so numbers wise I mean they're reflective of, of you know just people in general I mean cinema was struggling before the COVID anyway um, so this, I know a lot of people are saying is this the final nail in the cinema coffin part of me thinks that might be the case for the independent features but um, again I, I'm a lover of cinema and I can always, no matter where I go with my career as a filmmaker I can always say I had a film in the cinema and no one can take that away from me so I've been just buzzing on that wave for the last six months like. and it's, it's always the end of cinema you know, every year, every decade yeah, yeah. Well, it's something I'm always kind of banging on about in, on the podcast is audience and mm. how filmmakers need to think about audience. How do you think about audience how, and specifically with Broken Law? Did you, I, I think there's totally an, an audience for this kind of film that it mm. isn't really that often catered to. Well, I think as romantic as it is, the notion of going to the cinema and that communal experience, I don't think that can ever be replaced. There's something in our... DNA and our human nature that sort of we're almost there's this impulse to want to feel part of a community, feel that sort of connectivity with people as 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 flighty as it might sound. There's something that you can't quite reachieve in your living room or watching it on your laptop or whatever. When you're in with an audience, like for example, we had a premiere at Dublin in the IMAX theater with 400 people. And suddenly anything you see up on screen, it's almost becomes emotionally more amplified when you get to share that experience with people. And it's, um, but, but the thing, the evolution of how we ingest content, that's changing and there's nothing going to stop that. And there's no doubt about it. I think the, the vast majority of our audience 
is at home in the living room now. And I don't think that's going to change. So, I mean, back in the day when people went to the cinemas, they went to the cinemas because it was probably the only option to go and, and see something and get out for the night. Where, um, whereas the landscape has completely evolved. So I hope cinema survives, but it will be more of a novelty experience, a novelty event. So whether cinemas have the confidence to hold on to the independent films during that time, I don't think it will make financial sense to do it. I think it will be big tentpole events in 10 years' time, possibly. Yeah, but the, the, you know, people are going to get sick of the blockbusters where I want something in. I think indie will always be peaks and troughs, but... Yeah, you know, remember Martin Scorsese, he got a, a bit of a heat for calling them sort of oh, yeah. cinema fun fair, team park ride mm. kind of experiences. So there will always be the desire to get out to that kind of event. But I think, I don't know, it's just, again, it's, it's economics at the end of the day. If it's not financially viable to do it, then they won't do it. I think there's probably... 70% of the cinemas out there that are open and are showing films, but they generally can't afford to do it. Yeah. So how long can they last? I, I'm not quite sure, but it's an interesting time. There's no doubt about it. Is it the death of cinema? I hope not. No. But it's certainly the writing looks to me on the wall. No, it's not. Come on, let's. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's ever been more of a demand for content yeah. before. So... You know, um, but in in terms of as a writer director about you know what kind of audience are you would are you thinking of when you're writing? Um, I think actually on Broken Law, I'll be honest, we did think of audience first on this one because we knew Simon Doyle. You know Simon fails at films, mm-hmm. so Simon and I produced it, and we knew would have been. It's not Simon's first feature, but it's my first feature as a director. We knew that we wanted to prove, this might sound so cynical and sort of uncreative, but we knew that in order for us to make this film, we had to raise X amount of money. And in order to at least try and return some kind of finance to investors, we had to try and make something that would appeal to an audience, particularly a, a sort of a broader audience. So Broken Law became a crime thriller, a crime drama. It's a quite popular genre in Ireland. Um, so we did think of audience first and how we could get bums on seats or eyes on screens or whatever the, the phrase is now. And in that respect, I think we we can consider our endeavour a success. Um, I mean, Broken Law hasn't even begun its journey in terms of audiences seeing it yet because... I mean, there's not an official yet, but we have the options of TV, Netflix, and whatnot down the line. So, um, yeah, your pick of the platforms would Netflix be the one, or? Um, well, it's about where our audience is, mm-hmm. and that's where the audience is. Um, there are other, uh, I mean, Amazon Prime, and there's Sky, and there's um, even Ireland. Domestically, we have Volta, is it the Irish yeah, streaming okay. platform? But I think we'll probably approach them all and see where it goes. What other stuff would Simon be um, attached to? I don't know him. Well, Simon, along with Dave Byrne, they produced, and Kieran Craig, they done Kieran's feature, In View. Right. Um, again, it was a, that was actually a pretty intense drama about, a, I think, a cop, I think she was a cop, yeah, who, um, who suicided. 
I don't think that needed a spoiler alert, but um, it was a pretty heavy topic, but uh, they done a great job on it, yeah. Uh, I don't think see that as cynical at all. Like, you know, mm. carving out your, your market and go, you know, I, I, I wish more filmmakers thought like that, to be honest. Yeah. Rather than, oh, I'm making this <laughs> for me. or You know, I think, I think it's just it's a conversation that maybe should be had a bit more. Look, I agree with you. I, I don't even consider myself an artist in the artist respect, but I mean, it's a business. It's the film business. It's the film industry, and we're creating employment, hopefully, for ourselves in the future. So if I want to work on my next film, i got to make sure the first one is financially viable, otherwise I might never get that chance again. So a lot of people might consider it non-purist. They might consider it to be selling your soul, you know, I don't think so. Otherwise, I would just sit at home and write poetry or write songs, much more cheaper and easier and more personal. But you have to respect the audience. In, in, in cinema, I agree completely. Did you have a... When you were like, I'm going to make my first feature film, did you, were you toying up different options of different ideas and different script ideas that you had? And what was that process like for you? Absolutely. Maybe 10 years ago, I was naive enough to think that I could go out and make something that Andre Tarkovsky might make in there and people will flock to it and it'll be hailed as a masterpiece and I can just knock on people's doors and say look can I have 500,000 I mean, that's where my head was 10 years ago you know <laughs> uh, but then uh, as I started to learn about the industry and learn about uh, my own talent and, and what I needed to learn I suddenly realized right we got to um, got to earn every every ounce of wherever it might go but but yeah, I, I mean, my next one, I'm hoping that I'll have more, I guess, creative freedom and creative um, talent to be able to do something a little bit more personal. Not to say Broken Law doesn't sing with my heart and soul. It really does. There's blood, sweat and tears in there. And, um, but I would like to do something a little bit more, what would you say? I don't mean artistically highbrow, but something a little bit more... I don't know. What's, what's the term? Less chase, chase, bang, bang. Yeah, yeah. It's less something less formulaic. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I love cinema. I love the popcorn experience. But I also love a film that can sort of teach you more about life. The film actually, you, you might watch it, you might not necessarily get it completely on your first experience, but it leaves the cinema with you. And you learn more about that film as you're, you know, and you identify with it more. That's the kind of film I want to kind of make. Are there any films that you're kind of, that you've seen recently that you're kind of buzzing off in that regard? I love Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I don't see it. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible film. I've seen lots of films lately, um, but I wasn't impressed too much about much. Mm. What did I say? I watched over the last few days. I watched some Bergman. I pulled out my old Bergman box set. Yeah, Gary Duggan did. He did a big. I know the name. Yeah, I watched about fifty Bergman. We were really? posted on Facebook and kicked off this big debate between well, which is the best and so. There's actually a brilliant YouTube channel for for Bergman aficionados, and they 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 will all have a collective viewing of a movie and then go on YouTube or Google Hangout and all debate the, the metaphors and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But, but that kind of cinema really turns me on to cinema mm -hmm. again. 
Whereas I love also the escapism of watching them. Um, I watched the other day on my VR headset, um, Interstellar, in, in my own VR cinema experience. And that was a mind-blowing experience. But you can kind of park your uh, analytical brain when you're watching something like that and just enjoy the, the, the ride of it, you know what I mean? What? You have a VR setup? Can't, can't push past that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually got it's one of the best little toys I ever bought. It's a it's like an Oculus Quest. Okay. It's a the wireless headset. So you put it on. I actually got it for the virtual cinema experience, and I am not kidding you. It will blow your mind. You're sitting in this, and the good thing, see, I'm a wheelchair user, so I can't just pick and choose my own seat in the cinema. You're generally up the front, away at the back, and you don't get the optimal viewing experience. So in my VR cinema, I can say wherever the hell I want. <laughs> and actually, there's an app called Big Screen. And you can, people coming in, in virtually into the cinema with you. No way. And you have a collective viewing experience. It's bonkers. People sitting beside you, and they could be speaking Chinese, they could be speaking French, they could be, how are you doing? I'm, I'm Ireland, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. This, uh, the future of VR cinema, that excites me. Really, yeah. Oh, my God, man. You know, you'd be able to go out on a cinema date with, say, a girlfriend from the far side of the world, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. But what excites me about it, again, I'm, I'm quadriplegic. So there are certain uh, physical restrictions in terms of going places with accessibility and whatnot. But in this virtual space, there, there's nowhere you cannot go. And it sort of, it gives you that sort of sense of liberation. It basically rehabilitates you in, in many ways because, I mean, many people would, would consider disability um, sort of something that's almost um, bestowed in you because of the sort of geographic restrictions. So that's gone in virtual space. Mm. So where virtual reality and reality are going to somehow uh, converge it's exciting, and then we've yeah. got Neuralink and all that coming down the line. Oh man, what a time to realize! <laughs> when, when did you say to yourself, I'm going to be a filmmaker? When, when did that happen? Um, I don't know if there was a, a wake up moment, but I did again. I, I was in the hospital, I was in a car crash when I was 17. So, for a few years, I had a lot of time on my hands to. I was in rehabilitation hospital for a year and then maybe two years on and off. Um, so I had so much time to watch movies and um, listen to music. That was my sort of pastime. Well, did, wasn't Scorsese in his, his bed for a couple of years looking at the window? That's what I heard, yeah. yeah. And even uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Really? He had uh, he was struck with something when he was a kid as well. Yeah, kind of six children have a different view or something. Yeah, it seems to be a common enough thing with auteurs. Well, just with artists in general, there seems to be a, a correlation between trauma mm. and art. Mm. Well, what that is, it's like it's almost if you take sort of ayahuasca and you get some kind of psychological... And once you go there, there's no coming back. So for me, I had like three or four years of physiotherapy, but also I went on a spiritual journey trying to heal myself at the time. I wanted to walk. That was my goal. So I started learning about kinesiology and bioheal and, and recce and started to read ancient texts of ancient... Like, sort of, like for example, um, Tantra Yoga and Acupuncture are predate like history, I think, like 4,000 years ago. That, 
that there was a civilization that understood the mechanics of the body, the energy, and all that kind of stuff. So that fascinated me, and I started to learn all that. So the mind was kind of opening, but as I was watching movies and listening to music, and I don't want to put a downer on the conversation, but during that particular time in my life, I was discovering myself. I was becoming happy. I was starting to fall in love with who I was. The disability wasn't a problem anymore. It was more of a it was a challenge, but it, I was more motivated to prove to people that I was just as able as anybody else. But sort of coincidentally, at that time, we had lost two close friends to me uh, around the same age uh, to suicide in our village. The whole community was devastated. And there was a wake-up moment for me at that point when we had two young people in the whole of their physical health, on the surface it looked like they had the world at their feet and they suicided and that's it, it's over. Yet here I was and lots of people looked at me and considered my life to be over or at least the option was very limited. Yet I was buzzing out of my head, I was like happy to be alive and I thought there's something wrong here and the more movies and music I was taking in I realised when you look at the information that we were taking in on a daily basis and we used to buy the newspapers at home as well, so you've got the star and the sun on the, tele- on the table. And everywhere I looked, I realized that there was this, I, I call it like sort of junk thoughts. There was all this bullshit that we were taking in on a daily basis that was basically telling us that in, in order for us to be successful in life, we had to be young, we had to be sexually attractive, we had to be financially uh, secure, and, and fame, and all this kind of stuff, and it was absolute nonsense. And I also looked around and considered media, in particular, was such a powerful platform in order for us to express our thoughts and to be able to influence people. And I just I looked at the world in a very angry and cynical way, and I thought, right now the whole world is in this grasp of, of this, this sort of, I don't know, this sort of rat race of... Um, I don't know, I just got frustrated and I just decided, look, I think I have a lot to say about life and maybe film, maybe music, maybe poetry is a way that I can express it. And that's how it started. I I wrote poetry at first and that veered off into songwriting because I had some friends that were involved in music. And at that time they were saying to me, you actually wrote that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I did. They thought that I downloaded half of this stuff off Google. so somebody encouraged me to write a short script and maybe do a film. And uh, I got the notion, because I was watching, you know, one of the, it's the first box set I bought was a Stanley Kubrick's box set, um, A Life in Pictures. And uh, those movies just absolutely blew my mind. And Because uh, I didn't really think cinema could do that. It could also be thoughtful and um, uh, as, as well as entertaining. And uh, I just went on this just binge of sort of really good directors. And I got that bug that I couldn't shake off since that I wanted to direct movies. Yeah, it's a, a convoluted route to making films. Well, that's how it began for me. It's yeah. fascinating. Um, say, before you were asking, what, like, what role did movies play in your life? Or was it a big thing? And also, what, what did you think you were going to do? Yeah. Was it different, you know what I mean? Well, certainly Filmmaker wasn't... I mean, I'm, I'm proud to say, um, from a working-class background, 
I grew up in Clanbalog in a village in Offaly. Um, you know, I, like I, I enjoyed work. I loved working on the bog or working on the buildings. That was, if I had a future, I thought it was somewhere in the line of construction. Is that what your family did, kind of building? Uh, my dad, yeah, he was in building construction and carpentry. And his brother was architecture. And my mother came from a farming background. Um, so it would have been somewhere in that area. I, I was asked, somebody asked me recently, where do you think you'd be if you weren't in that crash? And I thought, well, I would probably be in debt to a bank. I'd have a house and a car that I didn't know, and I'd be on my way to a divorce. I'd have kids that didn't love me, and I'd be suffering from a midlife crisis. Well, that's your imagination as well. You don't know. Like, one day you, yeah. you might have hit your thumb with the hammer and thought, Jesus, I might be a filmmaker for this. No one does know, do we? Uh, we don't know. Uh, but who knows? But if you were to take a general look at some of the economic structure where my life might have went, chances are I would have fallen into that sort of routine. But, but look, honestly, I, I say the crash was the best thing that ever happened to me. I feel like, yeah, I was given a second chance at life. But like how film... I always loved films as a kid, and my dad used to be a huge fan of Hong Kong uh, sort of overdubbed martial arts movies and westerns and, and that kind of stuff. So I always remember the westerns, the spaghetti westerns, I always remember Morricone playing out in the house at home. Or yeah. Destin. Oh my God. So when I watch like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, it, it's it's not just an entertaining experience. It stirs the soul. You know, the earliest, you know, moments in my life were formed in those, uh, in those films. But like Bruce Lee and uh, Jackie Chan and all those kind of yeah, I remember watching, was it Fist of Fury? Yeah. That blew my mind when I first saw that. Oh, man. Well, Bruce Lee, for me, was was superhuman. He was the Superman for me when I was a kid. Like, still is, yeah. Oh, my God. Amazing. So, yeah. What was the steps that you needed to take to get to making your first shorts? Um, well, I wasn't sure if I could direct the film because, again, the wheelchair and all that kind of stuff, and I reached out to, I got a friend of a friend, got an email address of Declan Rex. He's a, an awfully based filmmaker. He made Pure Mule and Eden and The Flag and stuff like that. So I chanced my arm and sent him an email with a short script. Because pure chancer. And um, I got an email, I actually asked him an email. I said, look, I'm a wheelchair user, I'd love to be a director. Do you think it's possible? And if, I, if he had any advice for me. And he emailed me back. He was very generous with his feedback on the script. Lots of very honest. <laughs> we realized, okay, now I need to learn how to write. Let's talk about what was wrong with the script. Oh, shit. Start of it. <laughs> but, but he very kindly told me, he said, look, you don't need to be able to walk to be able to direct a film. You can direct a film from the seat of your pants. You can use a wireless monitor. You can... Was just on your technology is evolving so fast. I think he more or less said to me, he said, if you're a good communicator with people, then you can direct a movie. And that was enough for me. I uh, had the sort of emotional launch pad that I needed to go ahead on into it. So, I mean, the first short film for me was, again, back in the day, I'm not sure if you remember, it was a film, what was it, Network Ireland, Film Network Ireland, or... Jason Butler ran a great forum online and we were, that's where everyone sort of congregated online and uh, I just put out word, I'm making a short film and awfully anyone interested, 
pile of emails came in. And I'm not sure if you remember. Do you remember Crooked House? The company. Yes. I did plays with them. Well, they, Russia, yeah. They um, had a website looking for, yeah. Well, their acting forum on mm. Crooked House That's was right. amazing. Yeah. It was like a hotbed of, of acting talent looking for work. So again, I put in word into crookedhouse.ie and they got hundreds of replies. So I said, it looks like we're making a, a movie, lads. I think our budget on our first short was like 2,000 euros or something like that. And everything else was begged, stole, or borrowed. We're well, not sold. Brought it back when we were finished. <laughs> it was good crack, though. And that, that proved that you could do it and yeah. kind of launched you. I suppose, if, I guess, like if that didn't work, you probably wouldn't be talking to us now. Oh, well, look, I, one thing, a few people pulled me aside at the beginning, at the very, very beginning, and I took it so seriously. I wasn't interested in, in chancers turning up for the crack. Mm-hmm. I wanted people that shared my, my same desire to be the next Kubrick or to be the next Scorsese or whatever. So I was on that buzz from, from like, even Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Mm-hmm. That, that was the time when I was like, holy shit, I want to do that. So if, if, if I encountered anybody that didn't share that same professionalism or motivation, I would generally shake them off pretty quickly. What you mean you can't get 200 frogs in the same? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it did happen. Um, so yeah, I, um, I mean, once we made that, and, I, mean, I think Underground Cinema was the only yeah, place great, that I... Well, they're the only place I sent it to. Yeah. My very first short was called... Um, what was it called? Out of tune. I, I don't even want to look at it now because I cringe. But um, but the next one, I, I was even more serious with short film called The Moment. That's when I actually strategized and like you said, I talked about audience and talked about like, how are we going to, if it's going to cost us 5000 to make it, how are we somehow going to make that money back? Now we didn't, but we certainly got it back in terms of exposure, that kind of stuff. So, it's about building a reputation, isn't it? Yeah. And it's such a small film community in Ireland that your reputation precedes it, you know what I mean? If you, I think if you're bad, word will get out fast. Yeah, and time would be nice. Yeah, Just yeah. as a beginning. Yeah. You've kind of built a network. I know you've done some producing. I know that's probably not your end game, but did that help you as a filmmaker? Absolutely, yeah. Um, again, some of the filmmakers... I admire the most, the Kubricks, the Scorsese's, the Andersons, they produce their own work because what it does is you get to keep your hands on your work. You get to keep an, an, influen- an influential say in those important meetings where finance is discussed, where casting is discussed. So if I'm going to make a feature down the line, I'm definitely going to be a producer on it because I don't want anybody else telling me who I have to cast or, or not, you know, that kind of way. I think it's about holding on to, somehow holding on to creative control. It's like I was, I was listening to an interview from Van Morrison recently, who celebrated his 70th. And you know the way Hot Press done this sort of, wrangling all these Irish artists and they've done covers. So I've been fascinated with him over the last week and he, he sort of flippantly said, but it was a little bit of true to it, when a BBC interviewer was asking him, I see you produce all your own work, he said, yeah, in his Northern Irish American accent, he said, I stopped being an artist in the 70s and started producing instead because uh, I get a whole lot, again, a whole lot of creative integrity yeah. in his work. 
So that's what I'd like to do. Although it might not be the most exciting job producing, you know, yourself as yeah. a producer, yeah. it's it's quite, I mean, you take that kind of work home with you and take it to bed with you and it never ends. So if Hollywood came knocking and said, we love your stuff, we're going to give you like 500 million, you know, here's the studio, you're going to direct from here. Unfortunately, you won't be able to pick the cast. It's a superhero movie. You probably have to do it, though. Wouldn't you? Five hundred million would not just twist my left arm; <laughs> twist my right arm as well. That would twist me into a pretzel. Um, a price. No, look, I mean, there's always a price. Sure. But it, again, it, it has to be the right project. Yeah, I, I can. I'm privileged enough to say that if somebody handed me a billion euro or 10 million euros, realistically, to write a script that didn't resonate with my own values, um, I wouldn't do it. Okay. I've got air in my lungs, I've got food in my belly, I've got a bed to sleep in the night, that's good enough for me. And I, that sounds like the biggest load of bullshit. 10 million is a lot of squids. But uh, if I'm going to meet my maker at some point, I want to go there with a clear conscience, you know, knowing that I, I sort of Stood firm with what I believe in, yeah. Yeah, ten million, though. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. You, like over the next, where do you see yourself in five years? But I mean, do you have? Do you have? Have you set yourself a goal to? Um, the, here's the thing about because it's important to set goals. Sure. So it's important to know where you're going and if you're beating there, if you're hitting those sort of milestones, and. There's this weird dichotomy right, with life, right? On one hand, I want to be planted in the moment. I want to enjoy the moment of life and the experience. I want to be as open-minded and as spiritual as I can be. But you've also got to, in terms of working as a filmmaker with a career, you've also got to think of a future that doesn't quite exist. And you've also got to set yourself some very definite goals. And So it's weird in one way that I... I'm a moment-by-moment person, but I do have a line of goals that I want to tick off. For example, I, as, I don't know, as, as egocentric as it might sound, I would love to win a Palm d'Or, the highest honor you can get in the Cannes Film Festival. So that would be a target. I'd love to make a movie premieres at Cannes and you get escorted up to Crozier and you get to uh, <laughs> and then you, you're greeted by a 10 minute stand ovation <laughs> I, I had a 10 second part in a Graham Cantwell's film Anton and they were going to Cannes I was like I'm coming really Cannes <laughs> yeah had a little glimpse of all that glam it's fun yeah. well I mean it's it's, it's bonkers yeah. but again it's part of our industry sure I, I cer- I'm certainly not motivated by a red carpet but I think it's a little bit of fun at the end of the day where you can go out with your mates, pop a bottle of champagne and say, look, that's we did it. Um, so that would be a goal. I, but I would like to... Not get a picture every couple of years. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to um, be able to make about three features in a decade. Okay. Um, that I can really love with all my heart. You're not so, going for the Tarantino 10 or anything? No, or the, the Woody Allen one year Jesus Christ, job. Yeah. No, because the problem, I know there, there are problems with Woody Allen, but just in terms of his work, I think the, quite mediocre in terms of, it's like a factory line and you just keep churning them out. 
I think if he did what he, he might have done back in the 70s, uh, where you watch Manhattan Murder Mysteries or Annie Hall or Manhattan, absolute masterpieces of independent cinema. Even Bergman, Bergman churned them out. Got our. Um, I was going to ask you about the new wave and sort of thing for you. Well, the new wave came to me through the American new wave. So I kind of done it in reverse. So I was on the Oliver Stone Scorsese trail, and I realised that when I watch interviews from those guys, they revert back to the French new wave because that's where they were inspired by the Goddards and the Trugolos and whoever else. Um, so I, I went in a roundabout way and I found myself back watching New Wave Cinema and then Russian cinema. Russian 70s, 60s, 70s, even 50s, Bergman area. Um, Mind-blowing, how it could be so poetic and also adhere to an audience's desire as well. Um, like, man, there's so many movies that just baffle me with how brilliant they are and how they got away with them even at a time. I watched, um, just on the topic of Bergman, I, um, you know the familiar ones, um, like Persona and um, what's the one uh, where Max won side of the chest, the death chest, really. seven, seven seal. Seven seal. When you watch those, they're not just movies, they're, they're lessons for life. I heard that song, um, oh this is the bit you can cut out Paul. <laughs> Judy Dench singing this song Bring on the Clowns Shannon the Clowns I heard Dumpy sing it once in an interview a bit drunk on TV or something and then I figured, I did a little Google on it you know and it turns out that it's from a musical and the musical was written by that famous guy Stephen Sondheim mm-hmm. and the musical was based on a Bergman movie called Summer Evenings or something <laughs> so I started watching that a few weeks ago it's mad that the rabbit holes you down, like, and how people influence each other. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. With, uh, you would have been able to time buying DVDs, like myself, I suppose, like, like all the making ofs and all the extra features, they were probably your school. That was my film school, 100%. I remember, and I still have it on, the very first DVD I bought was um, Any Given Sunday. Still have it there, the price tag on it, 20 quid. 20. <laughs> Rip But that was the first one and I bought thousands of DVDs since. I was a DVD junkie um, until um, downloads come in. So, but yeah. But that but the special features on those DVDs, especially the director's commentary or the actor's commentary on movies, oh my god, like have you, have you ever listened to the director's commentary on Reservoir Dogs? I would have, yeah. Okay, all right, yeah. all right, all right, okay. All oh, right. man, it's, yeah. it's an absolute masterclass. You've yeah. got Tarantino, you've got the producer, I can't think of his name, and you've also got somebody else. And it's an education in itself. Just the director's commentary on Reservoir Dogs. Mm. I'd recommend anybody. Mm. And it's for free there. Yeah. Not for free, but it's, it's on there. I've never seen that in the Savoy on Collins Street, and when the lights go off, you just hear the DJ's voice. Really? <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, man. No, it was the same. Now you have a bit more, uh, like, there's all these kind of video essays and stuff, so, like, yeah. on YouTube and stuff, which is great, yeah. but there was just something about a commentary was, like, you ju- just your understanding of the film went from oh. one to ten straight away. Like, 
Absolutely. And when you see how human they are mm. and how some of the the challenges they had, when they might talk about a famous scene that you love and then they talk about the breakdown of how they got that scene. I'm like, oh, I, I watched them over and over again. And you know what else I found brilliant? And they came out about six, seven years ago, the Hollywood Reporter Roundtables. Yeah, that's it. Oh, man. Yeah, the nice. actors, cinematographers, the editors, and the producers, and the studio heads. Yeah. Oh, man, it's just free education. So I think it's outside of Roger Deakins, who else do you want to work with? Narion Narion Van Mael, you ever hear him? Great cinematographer. <laughs> he done Broken Law. What else? <laughs> he's a he's a little genius. Okay. He is so brilliant. He, he made um, a feature, shot a feature with his brother directing, called Gutland. Looks amazing. But like the content this guy makes. Um, How did you find him? Well, we kind of all kind of worked like Simon. Would have Simon Doyle, they would have worked a lot together on commercials and short films. Okay. And then I would have produced a short film with Tristan, Tristan Heaney, yes. who starred in our film. So we shot a, a short film called uh, A Break in the Clouds uh, with him. So you uh, produced that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we're all kind of crossing each other's creative paths. So that's the thing I love about it, is we've got this sort of community of people that we go to. Uh, if they're not available, we can go to somebody else. You're not going to write a, a, a manifesto or anything? Like no, not yet. <laughs> but, you know, talking about cinematographers, I I mean, Deacons is amazing. I, oh, man, I'm drawing a blank now, but there's so many amazing It's a wonderful documentary, Visions of Light, isn't it? I think it's Keanu Reeves narrates it, but it goes through right. cinematographers over the last 50 years or 100 years. Wow, yeah. There's... Think that I don't think that's the Keanu Reeves one. But I I yeah, that's the one about film versus digital. Is the one that Keanu Reeves? Maybe I. I don't know. I'm not sure. But James McGarvey. Huh? James McGarvey. You done um, Atonement was it? Mm. Which, um, I think he's amazing. Yeah, what a gorgeous movie too. Did you watch Normal People? I did. I did. It's okay. I didn't like it either. <laughs> I, I didn't get into it. Yeah, I thought yeah. I couldn't relate to it. Mm. relate to the content mm. but I just don't know what did you not like about I just, I just felt it was overhyped it, same I just couldn't connect with it and maybe I'm just yeah, too I cold find it, and I it hard to because I guess you're dealing with privileged people and so although he wasn't um, mm. yeah no actually I watched it with a bit of a grumpy head in me and nearly possibly once or twice it annoyed me and then it went back yeah. to it and then it rewarded me you know and especially really? when they got to Italy I thought that scene around the table with the jealous guy was kind of really um, mm. done, you know? well what probably ruined it for me was the hype mm. and that that's why I like to generally go into a movie or TV series under the radar not hearing or knowing about it and just discovering it for myself because like you I went in there with so much expectation from this is a masterpiece mm. and I was so underwhelmed by it yeah um, but technically it was flawless yeah looked great sounded great performed for great 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 yeah. writing great yeah. directing but I don't know I, I'll give an example there because it, it's been a good year for TV like the my brilliant friend yeah. Italian thing at 
like that was just that really stuck with me. Like, like every episode that I watched, I was think, thinking about. Yeah. Um. The. Um. I may destroy you. Another thing that was on BBC, yeah. like really tough to watch in parts, but mm. like that. What that was? These were the things that I thought kind of deserved the hype. And yeah, yeah. for whatever reason, uh, I just could not get into normal people. Yeah, you know? yeah. But you know what? It's it comes down to taste. Then it's it's um, it's like some people like coffee, some people like tea. It's just the way yeah, it is. Yeah. Would you do episode coffee? I would again if the. I mean, such. Um, I only got into TV series during the lockdown. Okay. Like I watched Sopranos for the first time. I was in the post office the day, and one of the guys I was working in, one of the guys working in the post office, goes, "Start watching the Sopranos again." Wow, they all look so young. <laughs> it just that was the funniest thing to do. Oh, a lot of people have gone back to that show. Haven't they? Oh, stop! Look at that. I watched it for the first time, and and I was blown away because I realized even twenty years ago, however long that was, how um, outrageously uh, provocative and how cinematic it could be. I mean, the soundtracks were absolutely amazing. I was thinking, okay, if that's where TV is, then I have no problem going there. Because I think TV maybe has a reputation or had a reputation of being quite sort of over censored or quite formulaic and um, but now like I like since then I watched um Breaking Bad. I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen that yet either. I, I'm actually looking forward to seeing the wire because anyone I talked to about the wire like, oh man, you are so lucky you get to see it for the first time. I'm so surprised you haven't gotten there yet. No, it's just a movie right. and I was a snob about movies as well. I was, no 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 cinema for me, don't see TV <laughs> And all the while I didn't realise TV was fucking kicking ass. Well, maybe don't go, maybe keep making movies and, and don't get sucked into the vortex of TV shows if really? you don't make anything, just sit at home watching stuff. Well, you know, I'll be honest, right, Broken Law, I wrote in such a way that it could potentially be developed into a TV series. Okay. I don't want to spoil it if anyone hasn't seen it yet, but I think some of the characters in our film, there's so much more scope to be explored that if somebody came along and said, Paddy, how about producing uh, maybe six hour-long episodes for whoever, for whatever, and there's your budget? I would happily, I'd take the handoff. I, I think it would be a great opportunity to, again, explore that world. Mm. and uh, Because, again, it's different. It's almost like I mean, cinema is, is like listening to classical music, while TV is almost like a completely different genre. You're fed the story narrative in different ways, or characters in different ways. But well, that's what I was going to ask you about as well, was three-act structure. Sorry, Paul. Structure, yeah. Well, the thing, like, again, I haven't seen The Wire, or I haven't seen Breaking Bad or anything like that, but I do know that structurally they're delivered in a different sort of... I mean, you have your overriding sort of three-act structures, but, they're, but they have different ways of introducing and intertwining characters. I was told that you might see a character in episode one and you might not hear or see them again for episode five. So how you can get away with that type of clever writing and still hold your audience and still give your audience a sense of geography or a sort of place where they know where they are in the story. So that takes... I think if I was to write a TV series, I would have to go back to school and learn how to you know, get it right because I've seen some sketchy TV series that are maybe leaning too 
hard on the familiar TV stru- or sorry movie structure. Sure. Um, and in Game of Thrones, when they killed off was it Sean Bean? See, that was like a big kind of yeah. can kill the lead. That was amazing. And again, that was one of the first TV series I watched, and I binged it okay. all in like I think I watched all of Game of Thrones in. About twenty weeks. Right. Like I, I was never a big into battle sequences, but the Battle of the Bastards is just unbelievable. Oh man! <laughs> Sorry, did I say twenty weeks? I don't know. I meant twenty, 20 something days. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I hit out for like weeks. It was like, well, seven forty when you're about three weeks. Uh, yeah. The whole thing ingested. Mm. Um, but I loved it. Like you said, when they killed Sean Bean, I was like, "Wow, where do you go to from here?" And then there's the Red Wedding. You're like, wow, where do you go from here? Yeah. And then you in the last episode. I didn't know where to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the last episode? I didn't mind it. I, I kind of kicked against the backlash, if you know what I mean. Everyone was giving out so much, I kind of went, ah, it's Grant. Yeah. No, I didn't really care. It was awful. It's just hard to fathom how bad it was. Just in terms of, just, again, that thing of connecting to it. You spent seven or eight series. Yeah. And then it's just nothing. I guess, I don't know if it's but momentum life is, or... Life is meaningless, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> um, just on Broken Law, uh, just tell us a bit about the journey of actually getting that on screen. Oh, my God. I know it's a long one, but... <laughs> it's a long journey. It's a long journey. the version of depression. <laughs> um, it all started, I know, when we got to a point, maybe in mid-2017, I thought I had what I needed to actually take on a first feature. I, I felt I was ready. Um, so, What does that mean? You've done enough shorts? And, and yeah, I had enough under my belt to give people the notion that I could probably direct a feature film. Had you done a funded short at that point? Uh, yeah, I, I would have raised money on all of the shorts. True in my, To my mind... One of the routes to making a feature in this country seems to be to make a, a film board funded or a Screen Ireland funded short mm. before you can even think about approaching to make a feature. Was that the case with you or no? Um, back at, when I was started making short films, there was a signature fund for right. short films, and I think the budget was like 80,000 or something astronomical annual. But then I started to see a lot of independent filmmakers around me making feature films for 80,000. Hmm. I'm thinking, I wonder now. And the thing about making it independently at that rate is that you've got more creative freedom to, and you've also you can be a lot more flexible in terms of time and schedule and that kind of stuff. So I always thought to myself, right, if we can't get funding from Screen Ireland, at least we can lean back on the indie, do-it-yourself kind of DIY. It was like, again, watching Hearts of Darkness, the making of Apocalypse Now, uh, that inspired me a lot. It was like, okay, we're making a feature one way or another. But um, but I had rang, sort of, I wouldn't say I'd mastered the art of crowdfunding, but I had a good handle on how to work that before I went into the feature. Um, so we I, we did apply to Screen Ireland for development funding for the feature. It was turned down. Now, at the time, I didn't take the, the rejection too kindly. But in hindsight, I realized that they were 100% right. It wasn't near ready. I mean, they were interested in developing it with us, but not funding, funding the feature at that point. So 
I, at that point, I was like, no, I'm not going to spend five years in development hell. I just want to go out, make it, uh, and learn as we and go. What is development hell for someone who's just tuned in? Uh, it's a, well, there's like development limbo. So yeah. where you, it's it's in development, you're, you're constantly tweaking it and fixing it and revising it, and then it's put to a committee, and then some people might not like it, some people might like it. Um, there might be a change of staff on the funding committee, and, and then it's spend in, years in this process. Yeah, so it's um, you're really making it to. You basically have to get the approval of everybody at the table. You, I, I'd imagine before you get the funding, the okay. Plus, I think creatively, you've got to adhere to certain sort of requests. A camel is a horse that's made by committee. I'm not sure what. I've never heard that one before, what's that? No, I'd like to get money off the screen. Oh, right, yeah. Well, it's great that they develop films. And, uh, oh, God, yeah. But it is unfortunate that films can end up in a place where yeah. they spend a few years in development and then maybe the idea goes out of fashion or the, the heart goes out of it. You know, that's it. Look, not every film's going to make it to the screen, yeah. Well, that's it. And I didn't want to... Like, I don't know how long I'm going to be on this earth, but I'm not going to spend five valuable years my life waiting and waiting yeah and now, and now you're in a position where you've done something you've proved your worth so if you did, if you did go into development exactly and I knew I knew I could raise enough money to at least get us out the gate sure so like when we set up a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo we raised 45 or 6,000 there and that was enough to give us the confidence to go to the bigger doors and say look we, we need your support and and yeah, that, that's money for regular people, regular jobs. Yeah, family, jobs. friends, yeah. strangers. Yeah, a few quid of my own in there, but it was it all kind of helped. And at least then, when you're say arranging meetings with sort of bigger financiers, at least you can say to them, "Well, we've got this on the table. Uh, I won't be taking away Jonas, so I basically invest anything I would have made and it back into it." And that that was the way we convinced private financiers to get behind it. So we had enough for a budget of one hundred and fifty thousand, and um, like Simon again, Simon Doyle, incredible producer, in terms of access to a great pool of talent. I worked with some really great people as well. So we we kind of yeah we we relied on some of our closest network of, of filmmaker friends and cast, and we went for it and. And that's an important step, isn't it? If you're going to make a first feature to have an experienced producer mm. on board, so you're not just... Yeah, absolutely. I always kind of slag Simon. He's so laid back. He's nearly horizontal. But he never he, he never panics. He, he always keeps his cool. And you need a cool head when all about you is, you know, chaotic. But the thing is, I mean, it wasn't as easy as just raising that money and, and shooting on day one. It was like, like I went through two different producers and we were so close to shooting, and then the wheels came off, a financial pull out here, a financial pull out there. And um, so it was stop, start, and stop, start. And eventually, by the time September 2018 came around, we were ready. We had everybody locked in, and we went for it. Um, so we shot a movie, and the good thing about Screen Ireland, they very kindly said to us, said, okay, we respect your decision to go and make a movie on your own. So come back to us in post-production, we'll have a look again, and see if we can help you out in any other it's way. It's a rare enough occurrence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and they were, um, they, they honoured your word. We, in again, post-production, we ran out of money, and we needed help to get that 
post production over the line, color grade and editing, soundtrack especially. And um, we went back in, and they, yeah, they liked what they saw, and they got behind us. And you know, like as I would have been cynical enough before working with Screen Ireland, I was like, oh, Screen Ireland, you know, they only fund their friends. The more I got to know them, actually personally, and meet them in the office, and you realize, actually, you know what? What they're doing is pretty good. You That's know? showbiz, isn't it? Because I know from yeah. sitting around as a disgruntled actor, you know, yeah. the whole thing is rude, and so and then you get a few gigs, yeah. you're like, oh, actually, there's lots of nice people out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, there's there's a reason. Um, there's a reason. There's a reason that they have to hold on to that money as tight yes. as ever before they let it go. And you have to prove to them not just that the script is good or the director is good or if you one or two cast members there. You have to prove from top to toe that you can deliver a product to the highest standard and every penny is spent and accounted for. And all your legal and your accounts and your insurance, all that kind of you know trivial stuff is looked after. So, um, And that's probably where I think a lot of independent filmmakers let themselves down is the admin the professional stuff, the office stuff, is not quite up to standard. Did you have a, a line producer? Uh, well, Simon was yeah, lining okay. for us as well. Like, in fact, Simon was initially in as line producer, and we decided to tackle it ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we eventually got it done in, in late twenty eighteen. Yeah. So from start to finish, it was how long was the process? From which part? I guess from from like. <laughs> Did you, being did, when did you write this script or this idea? Oh, first draft was done. And I finished the first draft the same day Michael Jackson died. Okay. And wow. that was June 25th, 2019. Wow. Pedophile Michael Jackson. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Norm MacDonald. I can't believe it. <laughs> I like Norm's uh, humour. He's, he's out there. But I, I'll be honest, I was and in many ways still am a massive Michael Jackson fan sure and I was because he, he okay it's I just going to get weird in That's my yeah no like it was, one, it was one of my main creative inspirations okay. all my life yeah. like Man in the Mirror came out and my mind was blown from that time so genius I mean performing that live on stage so when I finished I had planned I had a drink bar to celebrate the finishing of my first draft on the 25th uh, of June, right? So I had me drink, it was a bottle of vodka. Uh, 2009? 2009. 2009, yeah. years ago. Yeah, and I was ready to celebrate finishing the first draft because I don't drink during the writing process. I wait and treat myself to a movie and uh, a drink. And then uh, my brother came in to me, I was in the sitting room in the house and my brother said, switch on Sky News. And said Michael Jackson had died. And I was devastated. Because, again, I idolised him all my life. And I don't idolise famous people, but Michael Jackson was one of the, the few that I, I admired. Now, all the controversy aside, not that I was blind to the controversy, but there was certainly... Um, yeah, my stomach was torn on many occasions, hearing about personal life and all that kind of stuff. But as an artist, I thought, wow, this is, this is an incredible standard of work. Um, so I ended up um, drinking that night to sort of celebrate the passing of Michael Jackson. <laughs> uh, so yeah, 11 years since the very first... Uh, Did it change much from the first draft? 
Oh my god, yeah. I mean, the original title was The Broken Law of Attraction, which was a big ensemble. A million miles away. Oh my god. It was a Magnolia-esque kind of movie, where it was fate versus coincidence kind of okay. thing. And um, yeah, I mean, I had notions, I had huge notions, epic notions of, of this first feature. But the more we realized that the budget was not going to be there, the, we, we decided, uh, I think late 2017, we said, right, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's pull out where we feel the real story is. And the real story, the spine of the story was between the two brothers on opposite sides of the law. And we concentrated on that. And what happened then was fate versus coincidence. That whole team fell away and it became more about a character going through a sort of a crisis of identity and, and sort of uh, at odds with the loyalty between his family and the law. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we paired it right back, all the way back to a very intimate story between two brothers. But the brothers was always that you mentioned before that you you have brothers and you kind of wanted to explore that. Yeah. Well, the, I like I I always and I jokingly my brother James. I jokingly said to him, I mean, he was always the scallywag and I was the, the golden boy of, of that. That was just the dynamic there. I was the eldest son. My mother was sort of raising us single-handedly and I was out earning the money and that kind of stuff. So I was, I always had a chop on the dinner table while the rest of them had sausages. You know, I was the little thatcher <laughs> because I was uh, handing up money. Uh, whereas James was a bit rebellious and he... He like, he was his father's son. When when my mother and father separated, he was a broken kid. You know what I mean? So he didn't take it too well. So he was he was inclined along with this geezer behind me there. They were they were mates and they were up to no good wherever they went. So I I kind of I kind of drew from that brotherly dynamic experience for Joe and Dave and the film. Yeah, it reminded me of that song in Nebraska, the Springsteen song about the trooper, state trooper. Yeah, great film. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. and I mean, it's not autobiographical. My brother mm. never robbed anybody, <laughs> or, or threatened to kill anyone. Well, not that I'm aware. <laughs> What's your directing style when you're on set? Um, I, I, I'm, I don't know yet. But on this one, we knew we had to run and gun. It was because we're on such a shoestring budget. Everything had to be done fast. So when you know that already that is going to be the sort of running order of the day, you don't have time to set up long fancy tracks or coordinate sort of, you know, big set pieces like you'd see in a Scorsese movie or anything like that. So we knew in one way we had to be quick. So that, I guess, determined that we were going to go very organic and very sort of intimate and real sort of make it look like it's fly in the wall kind of um, social real kind of look. So again, Narian, our cinematographer, when we had early conversations, we wanted to, I guess, capture the moment and make it feel real and intimate and, um, but also vibrant as well. Because when we shot in North, North Dublin here. I live quite near this really? Metro Square, I live near there. And I know that lane quite well, you know, the, you should have seen it in the lane. Yeah, yeah. And it's great to see the characters buzzing around the town. You don't see that enough in films, I often think. Oh, You're stuck in a room somewhere. Near yeah. the East Wall. Okay. Yeah, and just, it's so vibrant there. I mean, you've got, in one area, you're not far from the financial district, and 
you see all the cranes on the horizon. Then other areas of nice little nooks and crannies of housing estates and, and uh, old town. And I, I like it. It gave us a lot of variety in work, sort of a visual aesthetic. Um, but like directing style, I knew it was going to be sort of meadowsy, lochy, sort of intimate real. Casavetes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, I would have leaned a lot on, on John Casavetes' work um, for that sort of indie style vibe, yeah. Um, What's the big fans of this Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, like, when, again, working with actors, um, like, we had a script, um, but you, you're trying to convey a sort of a sense of immediacy in the scene. So my advice to the actors was, we use the script as a sort of a, a sort of a blueprint or at least a roadmap for where we want to go. But when we're in the scene, we want to try and explore and try and be as natural and be off the cuff, and we don't have improvisation. Now, time-wise, we were so restricted time-wise with certain setups and certain locations that we didn't have time really to explore a scene as much as I would have liked. So there are a few scenes in there in the movie that I look and I kind of cringe. I think we could have got that scene so much better if we had the time to do it. So, um, but look, it's the nature of filmmaking. You're going to have what you have in the can. That's it, really. Well, I'm scanning my brain to think of which one because they all came off quite well. Um, I'm I said to you before we went on the mics, um, which is the mark now, what the fuck? <laughs> thing to say. Um, but, uh, John did some, I mean, all the, all the actors are really strong, but uh, in particular, John Connors did some, had some lovely little improv moments, you know, that yeah. I really enjoyed as I watched it, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, it's great that when you have an actor that's confident um, to improvise, yeah. to bring a little bit of themselves and just sort of, like, even trying to... just tell, them. even from the other actors, they're like, what's he going to, you know, what's he saying, you know? But, but the funny thing is... Yeah. I knew at all times where geographically he was physically going. Now, what he was going to say was another matter. And, and then we we done so many takes with him and, and Ryan Lincoln. Yeah. Those characters played off each other so well. And those guys go off in these tangents of, uh, I could recut this film three different ways. Okay. I have three different movies. I could have, I could have a, a, a Monty Python comedy or I could have a straight drama. They gave us so many options in the edit. That's funny. I, I, I was listening to someone talking about that the other day, talking, working on Meryl Streep or something. They did a scene, and she gave them six different versions of that scene. Oh, man. And part of me thinks, geez, that sounds like a nightmare for the editor. Like, but like, oh, no, I think... The more options, the better, you reckon. Yeah. Any good editor will yeah. want more options. Okay. This is basically sculpting. If there's sure. not enough there, you're restricted. But okay. But the thing, now, we didn't always have that time to capture all that content, but when the lads go off the leash and go on these tangents, it's it's amazing. I was just sitting back. Like, there's a scene in the film where the two boys are smoking weed on the couch. And again, we have a, a roadmap of where we start and where we want to finish. And a couple of little narrative points I want to address in the middle. After that, it's up to the lads. You take us where you want to go, but stay within the lights. Yeah. yeah, so... Um, we can just sit back, watch the monitor, and listen to the boys, and it is brilliant. But John Connors, especially, I think he's. I mean, the crack I've had, there's times where I couldn't look at the monitor because my eyes were teared up 
and laughing at, at the crack this lad comes out with. And you know, 90% of it can't go on a film. <laughs> like, it's, it's proved on social media, isn't it? <laughs> 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 uh, uh, so what's happening now? You've had your kind of release in Ireland. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, when do you think people might get to be able to see it? Well, did I hear right? Are the cinemas shut down in Dublin again? This is we don't know yet. Um, I, I, yeah, at this stage, might we're not in level three yet, it's, but we don't know. So cinemas maybe or may not be shut down in Dublin, but we've opened up in five other cinemas around somewhere else in the country. Okay. <laughs> it's amazing, it's amazing. We're just, I'm asking Rob, our distributor, Rob, where are we today? Oh, well, these are shut down, but these are opening again. It's uh, it's a nightmare. We'll still be in cinema, I think, for the next few weeks. So there is still a chance to see it on the big screen, and I really would encourage people to see it on the big screen because we have a kick-ass soundtrack, and, and just everything is just so much more alive up at the big screen. But later down the line, I think we'll probably be on TV, Netflix, all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah. what's next for you? Are you writing at the moment? I am. I've just started... Uh, Tying around with a few different ideas, so my goal is to have a a draft by the end of this year. So uh, I've, you know, there's one particular idea, and it's a story that I've been wrestling with. I don't want it to be my next film, but a key it won't let me go. It's like it, it's too serious to be my second film, and it's too personal. And it's I don't know, there's a slight chance by this time next week I might give in and say, all right, well, if it's shouting that loudly at me, mm. maybe it's time to do that one. Um, but but I'm excited. The ideas are flowing anyway. And, um, if you ask me in three, four months' time, I can tell you what the next project is. Uh, say, in your filmmaking journey, has anyone given you a really good piece of advice that's stuck with you? I... I was asked this question recently and I had to rack my brain for a while and I couldn't think of any one particular bit of advice but I'll answer you as I answer the other person that asked me it's like it's not necessarily a nugget of advice but more of um, again the people I'm inspired by the people that motivate me there's one correlation with them all and that's a great attitude um, a great work ethic. Um, there's a fearlessness to to chase down, you know, whatever they're passionate about, or whatever they love, at, at all costs. They, they're willing to lay it all on the line in order to get their story out there. But 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 also at the same time to have the confidence and the humility to be able to trust people and. Um, and not take advantage of people around you because, again, filmmaking is such a collaborative experience. And I know directors generally, traditionally, get all the credit for, you know, a Scorsese movie is a Scorsese movie, but there's probably 500 people, 500 really talented people that have contacted And Joe Pesci. And Joe Pesci. Another, like, I don't think we even really appreciate how great Joe Pesci really is. He's a genius. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I think be nice to people. And that's um, such like such a tired thing to say in twenty twenty. Be nice to people. It sounds like Ellen DeGeneres here. We know how that. There's enough anger and hate out there. You know, there's a lot of preaching. Just I, 
my my philosophy in this industry is treat people how you expect to be treated. And I don't want anyone to fuck me about. So, uh, not that I'm motivated to be nice to people because I don't want to be treated like shit. It's just good manners. I think that whether or not we do well in this industry, it, you at least want to do well while you're in there. And for me, it's the thing I love most about being a filmmaker is that I get to meet pe- new people, interesting people like yourselves, and you form these kind of friendships and relationships with people, and that's that is my definition of success in this industry. If I can get along and enjoy people's company, fine. If we don't get along, fine. You go your way, I go my way. Um, so th- my, my only advice that I live by anyway is, uh, yeah, just... Um, be sound. Be sound. That would be a can. Be sound in the world of pictures, yeah. That's great, Patty. We leave it there. Thanks Thank so much for the Interesting or centric characters. For whatever reason, these performers are less concerned with being stars. Because of that, they often take supporting roles in big movies or only play leads in indie films or TV. They're less concerned with their image. They can bounce between heroes or villains. They're chameleons and they often disappear into each role. So you might know their faces, but you might not know the names. So subscribe to us wherever you keep subscribed for podcasts and be on the lookout for that to come. And until then, uh, see you later, cinephiles. Bye-bye.